Today, I wanted to start with a question. And I always seem to start with a question or a problem, right? That's just how I am. Uh, but just a second, I'm going to cough, and so I'm going to shut off my mic for a second. I feel... All right. Uh, but if you were to describe the condition of our world today, just using maybe one or two words, what would be the words that you would use? What would be the words that, that you would use, some of the words that would come to mind? Maybe for you, it'd be the word chaotic. You, you look at the world around us and you see just kind of the chaos that's going on. Everywhere, there's just something new erupting, right? All over the world, we see constant things like that going on. Maybe you would say it's broken. You see just the sad condition of people in our world and, and, and the state of where things are at, and you see that it's broken. Maybe you'd say it's lost, far from God, distant and running in a direction away from him, or hopeless, confused. Now, there's, there's good words that we could use to describe our world, too, but none of them seem to like fully encompass it as well as some of these words that we've gone through. And, and here's what I think is interesting. Our world now reflects the world of Paul's writings really well. We're, we're going to look uh, today as we see this description of the Gentiles' lives, and I believe that it's an apt description of where we're at today. But in this passage, we'll not only see this description, but also the description of those who've been saved. Uh, the contrast between these two is intense, and what I love about it is that Paul is, is writing to Gentile Christians, those who came out of this culture into their new life in Christ. So we're going to dive into Acts 19 today to get an overview of who Paul is writing to. I'm going to give you an overview of the chapter, but you can kind of follow along in there and see what was going on. I'm going to give you a minute to flip there while I cough again real quick. You think you could grab me? I wasn't ready to step up here yet. Oh, I get her water bottle. Thank you. This is fun. It's got cool stickers on it and everything. So so Acts 19, we get this picture of Paul in the city of Ephesus. And it's, it's a, an amazing thing to think about because we, we read a chapter in scripture and oftentimes we go, okay, so Paul was there uh, with our short-term mission trip mentality. We go, he was there just a short time doing this work. Actually, in that time, Paul was there about three years in the city of Ephesus. And so this chapter covers quite a, a, a range of time uh, compared to what we would normally see. So he spends, spends about three years there. Three months of that, he starts in the synagogue where he's meeting with the, the Jews from the area and he's talking to them uh, about Jesus being the Messiah. He's showing them through scriptures how it points directly to Jesus, how he is the Messiah. And he spends those three months there uh, reaching or trying to reach and then he shifts over for the next two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So in this place, what's going on is Paul's coming in and there's kind of some open forum opportunities where someone can get up and share. Someone can talk and present. And he's taking these opportunities to do that. And then he's getting to have debates and conversations with people going over different views about who Jesus is and the truth of these things. And he's taking the opportunity uh, to reach people. And he's actually having like a disciple-making thing go on for two years as he daily gathers for discussion with people in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. It's a cool picture to see, and there was a large response uh, to what was going on, and then active sharing of the gospel came out of it from the people who were there and encouraged and discipled. They went out and started sharing the truth about Jesus all over the place. It says through, through Acts 19, there were some unusual miracles going on. Now, when we look at God and we see what God's capable of, there's no such thing as a real unusual miracle, but for us, when we read this, there's some weird things happening. 
Paul is, is doing these signs and wonders. He's, he is healing people in the name of Jesus, but then they're taking handkerchiefs that Paul touched and they're laying it on sick people and the sick people are getting healed. And they're going, whoa. Now we look at that and we're like, that's weird. <laughs> that's strange, unusual stuff. But what was amazing is every bit of it was pointing people not to Paul, but to Jesus. The name in which he was stepping out and proclaiming and doing these things. And they were going, wow, Jesus' name is so powerful. Jesus himself is so powerful that when someone who proclaims his name with authority touches something in the power that comes from just that proclaiming of his name has the power to heal. That's, that's mighty. It's incredible to see. Uh, Paul had the authority as an apostle to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And he's doing this. And others started going, well, we can be part of this. We can do this. And so we know the story of these brothers that came together and they went into uh, a place where there was a demon-possessed man. And they said to the demon, they said, in the name of Jesus and in the name of Paul, we command you to come out of him. And the demon responded to them and said, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Because of this, we look at that, we're like, that's a weird thing. We're not going to dive into that today. But what I want you to see is what was going on here. Uh, The entire region because of that situation saw the name of Jesus as even more powerful and held it with high esteem. The believers, those that had come to faith there, gathered all of their idols and books of witchcraft and sorcery from from their former ways of life, from their former belief systems, and they brought them out and they burned them. They got rid of them. Now, it, it sounds like, okay, so they were, they were trying to get rid of some stuff, but what you have to understand is the, the amount of stuff that they got rid of. Literally millions of dollars worth of religious things that they brought out. Millions of dollars of books and idols. This is what's going on. There's huge response to the power of the name of Jesus as they realized, I can give up this book because there's nothing I can summon in these spells that even compares to the power of the name of Jesus. They were getting rid of these things as they became in awe of who he is. Now, Ephesus was a city with a natural harbor and a lot of trade route went through there. A major source of income for them was actually idol making. They were known for making and selling little idols that people could take with them. They had their uh, many gods of the religions around them, but they had their god of Ephesus, a goddess named Artemis. She, she, they believed that there was uh, an image of Artemis that fell from the heavens, most likely some kind of uh, meteor that, that fell and they collected it and someone carved it into this image and then they built a temple around it and their job as the Ephesians was to protect the image of Artemis and to make her known. So people would pull into their port and there would be thousands of these little idols that they could purchase of Artemis and they would say, You don't have to come here to worship Artemis. You can take her with you and worship anywhere. And they'd sell these at a high price to people who believed that this is what they needed. So they kind of exploited this thing to make money and they were good at it. So when Paul's message had reached, as it says, the entire province of Asia, uh, which is what we know as modern day Turkey, the, the idol maker Demetrius started inciting the people to riot against Paul and against his message and against what they called the way, Christianity. The crowds drug out Paul's traveling companions and they wouldn't let them explain anything at all. They just were rioting and they shouted for two straight hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two straight hours, it took a city official coming out and, and getting them to calm down just long enough so that he could ask what is going on. 
They explain and then they riot again. This is who Paul's writing to. These, these are believers in a culture of chaos, of idols, of false teaching, of anger, of wealth, of rioting, of unrest. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's interesting to see. It's very similar to where we're at as a country today. And with this background in mind, we're going to dive into Ephesians chapter 4, uh, looking, starting in verse 17 here. Verse 17 says this, With the Lord's authority I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life that God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. I want to take a moment to, to look at this idea of the Gentile world and, and the way that they lived. We, we've seen what it was like in Ephesus, and I can tell you that all over the ancient world, it was very similar in many of their cities and regions. There was a lot of similar things going on, these dark, ugly, sinful things being done in the names of false gods. Here's the reality that we have to grasp, though, is that our world today looks a lot like this. The first word that he used, he said, they're hopelessly confused. I would say that our world is pretty confused. Just here, here's a test that you can do. Go to people, just walk up to people around and ask them, what gives life purpose? You're, you're probably going to hear something like this from most people. Well, doing what makes you happy. If you can do what makes you happy, that's what will give life purpose. It, it doesn't sound too bad until we begin to understand uh, how this works, all right? So what happens when what makes you happy doesn't make me happy? I'll tell you what happens. You have to stop. That's how it works. You can't be pursuing your happiness. It doesn't make me happy. So yours needs to go. You need to actually bow yourself to whatever would make me happy. That, that needs to be your focus because I'm not happy if you're pursuing that. If you were here a couple weeks ago when I talked about social justice, you'll see that that's the actual heartbeat of the whole movement is it's about bowing, everyone bowing to the happiness, to the fairness of specific groups for specific reasons. And everyone else has to get rid of all of what they would pursue in pursuit of that for them. That's what the demand is. This is the attitude that we see and it, it doesn't work that way. You can't pursue your happiness if it doesn't make me happy. You've got to go after my happiness. Well, here's the problem is the church is just as confused on this, on what gives life purpose and we've allowed the influence of the world to slip into our beliefs and now we tend to pursue our happiness over God's glory. Well, I came to church today and they, they just sang these songs. I don't even know these songs. I don't like those songs. I wish that they would sing the songs that I know and that I like because if they do the ones that I like, then I would sing them out. God would get all the glory from me because I know those songs and I like those songs, so I would sing them. But because they're singing these songs, these aren't the songs that I like. If, if, if they would sing the ones I want, I'd, I'd praise God, but because they're not doing it the way I want, I can't. You see what it is? Oh, I can't, I can't help in that ministry because that's my night where I have my me time. That's the time I get a little bit of break. I'll drop my kids off at it, but I can't help in it because that's my one time of peace where I get to come back to happy because if I'm not happy, no one's happy. And so I can't give that up. Sure, I could move my me time to another night, but that's the night I like it. Now, I'm not trying to cause you to be uncomfortable, or maybe I am, um, but I want you to, to think about this a little bit because those are not the actual real result problems that I see. I see those happening. Those are surface ones. 
It's not about preference of music or songs. It's not about willingness to serve in children's ministry. It's not about those things as much as it's about this. When we allow this worldly view to come into the church, our doctrines change to match our agenda, our circumstances, and our comfort. 52% of American adult Christians believe that they are saved by their works as of 2020. Over half of adult Christians in the United States are not Christian based upon scriptural definition. Do we see the problem? Do you know why, why that's going on? It's because we like the idea that we could earn something. It makes us feel better, the idea that maybe I could in some sense still be good enough. It's easier and it makes me happy to think about the fact that I might be able to earn favor from God towards my salvation. So that's what I want to believe because it makes me happier to think that I had a role to play in it. Because otherwise I have to admit that I'm not good and that doesn't make me happy. It doesn't matter that the doctrines of Scripture clearly speak otherwise. Those can be ignored or tweaked or, or, or done whatever to just to fit the mold of what I want it to be. I, I had a conversation last summer with a man, uh, and, and he was bringing up this verse that he was using and saying, see, this proves that, that it is through your works that you're saved. You have to do these specific things to be saved. That's what my entire church teaches. This is what most Christians believe. You need to get on the same page as me, is what he was telling me. And I said, well, here's the problem, uh, is you're reading all of Scripture through the lens of that verse. He said, yeah, that's what you need to do. This verse is the lens that we read all Scripture. And I said, no, you got your telescope backwards, man. you got to read this verse through the lens of all of Scripture. He said, no, that doesn't work that way. Otherwise, you could believe all these other things. I said, yes, you could. <laughs> You could, you could find this. But here's what was sad is that is the common belief now. Over half of the Christians in the United States. I, I'm in some groups on, uh, on Facebook, some groups of youth leaders from across the country, tens of thousands of them, that put out surveys about whether or not we believe that Scripture is true. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. And they say, uh, if you believe that, just click yes. If you don't, click no. Over half of them click no every time. And then they'll get in there and say, we know it's not all true. We went to seminary and they taught us it wasn't true. At a seminary level, it's being taught that scripture is not true. Not all of it, at least, because these pieces couldn't actually be true because they don't fit us and what we want to see happen. That's the reality of what it comes down to. But you see how dangerous these doctrines are? I think it's amazing that Paul wrote to the Ephesians about the specific issue of being saved by works or not. He was writing to a culture so similar to ours. And in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, he says, It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by your works so that no one can boast. It's no coincidence that a culture so similar to ours was having the same battle. You see, they they believed that they could earn favor from their gods through the works that they did. And so when they stepped into Christianity, they're going, okay, so how do I earn the favor from God in order to achieve or get this from him? And Paul's going, no, 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 (laughs) you don't. You can't. That's not how it works. And he kept having to bring it up because it's a battle Now, we've gone through one descriptive word of the Ephesian and Gentile culture and one descriptive word of our culture. 
and we see major issues already, but I want to keep looking, verses 18 and 19. I'm going to read these again to you so we can get back to this picture here. It says, their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life that God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. This is the picture of the Gentile world that Paul uh, was writing to, and it's also a picture of ours now. We can see that clearly, this world that is full of darkness, wandering from the life that God gives, rejecting and hardening their hearts against him and the truth. No sense of shame, living for lustful pleasure, seeking out uh, every kind of impurity and demanding that the rest of the world celebrate that with them and no longer call it impurity or sin demanding that we all get on the same page with these things. And you can apply that to all sorts of areas in our culture right now. We can see this easily there, but the question is this, do we see it within the church? Absolutely we do. As I explained in youth ministry right now, over half of the youth, youth leaders that I'm connected to across our country would be teaching that scripture is not inerrant, that it can be adjusted to fit what we need, especially on topics like this where we desire the hedonistic lifestyle to be able to seek whatever pleasure life offers that gives life purpose. That's the attitude of the Gentile world and it's coming into the church it's a problem that we see on all sorts of levels where churches over the last 40 to 50 years, you've seen denominations completely change stances and fall apart because they're disagreeing on things that scripture is absolutely clear on, but it's not popular. It doesn't lead to, to worldly success if we teach that. They're preparing themselves for the day when things are, are, are being told to the church if you're not allowed to teach this and they want to be able to still teach whatever they want, and so they're willing to toss certain things or say, well, it didn't actually mean that, and we adjust it to fit into the world around us instead of calling the world around us back to the God they were created to be with. It's a problem that we see. Now, this whole series we've been going through in Ephesians 4 is focusing on unity within the body of Christ. That's the attitude and the heart that we're trying to get to. And I want to tell you this, for us to find unity in Christ, we actually have to live as the body of Christ. And that has to start in this room. It has to start here. We have to start treating one another as though we are part of the body of Christ. You have to start knowing that you are part of the body of Christ if you have your faith in him. I think of Philippians, another place, Philippi, a city that was so similar to Ephesus and what they had, a very wealthy city. And Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, and here's what he said in Philippians 1.27. He said, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. I like bunny trails, so I'm going to stop for a second, but this one has a point, okay? Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Do you know that the moment you put your faith in Jesus, that your entire identity changed? Do you know that? That you went from being a citizen of this world, a subject and object of God's wrath, to now being adopted in as a son, a daughter of the king of the universe. And you are guaranteed an inheritance of heaven. The Holy Spirit seals and guarantees you that. Ephesians 1 talks about that. And it, he, we, we go from being a citizen of this world to now a citizen of heaven. We live in this world as ambassadors and representatives of heaven. We carry that culture to here, not this culture. That is what has happened and changed us. Our identity has completely flipped the moment we put our faith in Christ. And Paul is saying, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. 
You must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Did you hear the unity statement in there? Standing together in one spirit with one purpose. And then he explains what that purpose is, that we be fighting together for the faith. Not fighting each other for the faith, fighting together for the faith. And then he describes what the faith is, which is the good news. It's the gospel. One spirit, the Holy Spirit, that unites us together as the body of Christ. And one purpose, that the gospel would come forth from our unity together into the communities around us that desperately need to see it and hear it, that are looking for hope. Is that the purpose that you come to church with? Do you come to church with the attitude of, I'm here to be filled up, I'm here to be taught, I'm here to be prepared so that I can go home and I can live my best Christian life? Or do you come to church with, I I come to be filled, I come to be prepared so that I can be poured out that the people around me would hear and know Jesus? Both of them don't sound bad, but I'll tell you what Paul's pointing out is the latter. He's saying we are to be united, one spirit, one purpose. That means putting myself aside and standing in what Christ calls me to and then picking up his purpose for us as the body to make known his message to the world around us in unity. It's for us to stand in unity in the battle that we have, which is not a battle against flesh and blood, but a battle against the enemy, against his forces of darkness that are at work in this evil world right now, trying to derail every attempt that we make to carry that in unity. He doesn't come and derail the the simple, normal church everyday activities. He derails the times that we would come together for the gospel because he knows the power of the Holy Spirit that he can't stand against. So where does he attack? Here. Because he doesn't have to wait for us to get out there because if we step out these doors unified, there's nothing he can do. So he attacks here. And the unity is broken and we need to come back to this. Now, some of you are going, Ben, you're talking about evangelism again. And I always will and I know it gets annoying, but you're just going to have to pay attention because I have a microphone. But here's the thing. Talking about evangelism and you're going, but Ben, my neighbors, they don't want to hear me talk to them about Jesus. They've heard me yell at my dog too much. <laughs> they, they know what's really going on. The other night, uh, Janae and I drove uh, a car down to drop off at my parents' house in Sterling. Uh, and, and we were dropping it off for my brother because he borrowed a van from us and we had his car and all these things. It's a tangled web of confusion. Just don't worry about it. But we get the car down there and, and we, we go in. Our kids run into grandma's house, so excited to see her. Grandma looks at me and says, why, why, don't, you, uh, why don't you leave the kids here with me and you guys go on a date? And we're going, all right, cool. <laughs> like, it's not what we planned on, but Awesome. So the kids got to have, they're they looking at us like, yeah, get out of here. We don't need you anymore. We got grandma. So they got to have their grandma time. And, and I took Janae and we went down to a restaurant in town. We sat down. They get, handed us a menu and I, I pull it up and I look at the top right corner of the menu and they have a steak on there, $48 for this steak. Probably four to five ounces on today's market, right? It's, it's not much, but $48 for this steak. Now, I did not order the steak, but imagine that I did. I order the steak. I tell them how I want it cooked. They run back. They, they start getting everything prepped. A few minutes later, they come walking out of the kitchen. You can see the pride on the waiter's face as he carries this because he knows it's perfectly done. And he brings this out, and I can see it. I can see it coming closer. I'm getting excited about it. I close my eyes as he sets it in front of me, and I just breathe it in for a minute. 
my mouth starts watering, I finally look down at it and I see this perfectly cooked steak. And right next to it, there's this crusty ketchup line left on the plate from the kid who ate chicken nuggets off of it an hour before. Can you imagine what you would do with a $50 steak that has crusty ketchup on it from somebody before? Would you eat that? No, you, you say, I'm paying $50 for this. I want it on a clean plate and I want a new steak because now it's got chicken nugget crumbs on the bottom of it, right? If I'm paying $50, I want it nice. I want it good. And you would, you would hand that back for them to go and fix it. Here's the thing is we walk out into our world oftentimes and we're carrying this beautiful, juicy, delicious message of the gospel and we try to serve it up on ketchup-covered plates of lives. Our life doesn't match the message that we're carrying and we look at it and and we go, but it's okay because it just shows the grace of God all the more even though I've I've not walked out a a clean life very well and I, I haven't worked on battling my sin and stuff, but it just shows that God loves all the more. But here's what it says to your neighbor. Well, it's a great message, but it means nothing to you. Because if it meant something to you, I'd see that in your life. There'd be evidence. See, we are called in unity to pursue righteousness for the sake of the lost. It's not to earn something for us. We need to start seeing this differently and living a clean plate life so that the gospel can be served up. I'm not saying perfect. Maybe your plate is broken and glued back together. That shows the grace and power of God all the more. That's what people need to see is that, yeah, I was messed up, but look what this message has done. Look at what he has done. That the name of Jesus would be greatly esteemed in our region because of what they see evidence in your life. It's important for us to understand this. So how do we do it? How do we do this? Ephesians 4, starting in verse 20, we start seeing the answer for this. Paul says, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Truly righteous and holy. That's that clean plate right there. We take off the old, we put on the new. As Christ followers, we are to put to death our sinful nature, to crucify the flesh and its earthly desires on a daily basis, to live as citizens of heaven, walking out our call as ambassadors of the message of reconciliation that comes from heaven. We are to carry this out. So how is this done? Is it done by, by, me, by me having daily devotionals? Is it done by me attending church and serving in the church? Maybe it's being involved in every possible Bible study that comes up. That's how I take off the old and put on the new. What's the checklist that has to be followed in order to make this happen? Well, here's the the truth. There isn't one. There's not a checklist thing. In fact, that's what got us as the church universal into the mess that we're in in the first place is this idea of checklist Christianity. Checklist Christianity is fake Christianity. It's the idea that I can earn it from God instead of being able to submit to the fact that it was earned on my behalf when I couldn't. That is the problem. We are God's masterpiece. We are made new in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand for us to do. That is truth, so don't get me wrong. We are supposed to do these things, but not for us to achieve something or gain something or some kind of merit that we get from God. 
Those are all things we do for the glory of God in our lives and the lives around us, in his church, in the body of Christ. That is what we are to do these things for. So how do we throw off the old and put on the new? Verse 23 gave us that answer. It says, we do do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who changes the way we think, who changes our heart attitude, changes the way we read and view things, and, and aligns us with God. God himself does this work in us as we walk in him. When I'm studying God's word, it's not about me earning something. When I pray, it's not about me getting God to notice how disciplined I am. When I serve, it's not about this heavenly merit badge system that I'm going to get to proudly display for eternity one day. No, in all of these things, it's about submitting to the truth in God. And that truth is this. It's the truth that I'm not great, but he is. That I'm not good, but he is. That I'm not able, but he is is that I am weak, but he is strong. Just as Paul talked about where, where he said, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses, for in my weakness he is strong. What he's saying is this, is that I have a lot of skills, I have a lot of gifting and a lot of ability, and I could stand on those things, but for some reason God says, I want you to trust me and I'm gonna use you in the areas that you're not as gifted right now because it shows my glory. I'm gonna ask you to humbly trust me And Paul said, I'll boast in my weaknesses and say, yeah, I'm not good at this because when I'm not good at it and it still works, it shows it wasn't me. It's all to the glory of God. This is what he's he's pushing and this is the attitude we need to have. And, And in all of these things, it's about submitting to that truth in God. And when I begin to think of myself in truth, things change. The church, uh, in the church, I begin to see people as God sees them and I respond differently. I'm not as easily offended by my brothers and sisters in Christ when I see them through God's eyes. I'm much more willing to care for them when I see them through God's eyes. I'm driven to compassion for them when I see them through God's eyes. I'm I'm pursuing God's righteousness in others as well as myself when I see others through God's eyes. I begin this process when I submit myself to Christ as Lord of my life instead of me having to be in charge. We begin to see something new develop in us. We begin to understand why Paul tells the Romans in, in chapter 12 verse 5 of Romans that you and the body of Christ belong to one another. It begins to make sense when I start seeing you through the eyes of God because I've submitted myself to him as Lord. But that's where it has to start. For us in this church in the season that we are walking in currently as a local body, there is an urgency for us to start doing this, to start living this, an urgency for one another that we would start to come together and unite again in one spirit that we would be brought back together as we walk through these things with a unity on a solid foundation. There is an urgency for the lost around us that are in our communities that are looking all over to see what hope there is. And you may be going, are they really looking? And I promise you they are. Especially after a year like we've just had, people are looking for hope and answers. And if we are going to continue to function as a light in the dark world around us, we need to come back to our first love as a church We need to come back to Christ. I love getting to go over to what we call the youth center now. It's the the church building before this one was built. And there's a cornerstone that I see as I pull up every time. There's an inscription on it. Do you know what it says? It says, all for the glory of Christ. That's the foundation this church was built on. All for the glory of Christ. 
It's a constant reminder of what the first love of this church was, Jesus, the foundation with which everything would be built on for it, that he would be glorified, that we would, we would do things that his name be made great, that his name would be highly esteemed, not the name of Mitchell Berean, but that he would be known, even if it meant us fading out. This is the attitude that we need to come back to, and we need to pray for a revival of this in our own hearts. We need to gather together and be praying as a church for revival within our body here, for unity of one spirit, of one purpose, that we can walk back out all for the glory of Christ. And when we genuinely and fervently pray for these things, I have no doubt that God will move in mighty ways through us as a local church. And here's why I have no doubt is because of what I'm seeing happen on a youth and young adult level right now. And I I just want to give you this this disclaimer ahead of time. The youth and young adult stuff that's going on, that's amazing, I'm going to share with you, it has nothing to do with me. I often tell these two groups that they punch me right in the faith. And they do, hard, over and over again. Where I'll sit down with them going, okay, let's talk about stuff. And they bring up things that I'm like, oh my goodness, guys, that's that's a lot. And they go, yeah, but you told us God can do these things. I'm like, yes, I did. You're right. Like, and it's amazing to watch. I took students with me to lead the cause in Denver a couple weeks ago. And they spent the first 24 hours focused on prayer. Getting on their knees before God. Humbling themselves. Praying and, and learning about the power of prayer. And, and, and praying that God would, would save the lost. They were praying for the lost to be saved and saints to be sanctified intercessory prayer they prayed on your behalf for you that as a church we would come together with one purpose with one mission the mission of Christ they prayed uh, and as they prayed through that day they prayed against the the giants that face teenagers today of depression and anxiety of fear of bitterness of anger of lust identity crisis So many things, and as they prayed, they began to understand the victory that they already have over these things through Christ and his work on the cross. And they came out of that day so excited as we saw God immediately begin to move on things. God started to powerfully go in directions that we were like, okay, now we're ready to go. And the next day, they continued to pray, and they started focusing on care. The first thing they did is they took this idol that we carry in our pocket And they started redeeming it as a tool in the hands of God for him to spread his kingdom in the hearts of men. And they started reaching out on social media with quick starters to get conversations going, sending a text to a friend, starting the conversation of how can I pray for you? What's something I can pray about? And then they began to have these conversations throughout the whole day. Some of them for multiple days. Some of them are still having the same conversations, getting to talk to these friends about Jesus. What's amazing is then we went out to a park that afternoon in Denver and there was about 50 teenagers uh, there at this park and there were some at other places all over the city. And, and our students got together and they prayed as they carried these bags of, of canned food and stuff to houses. So they knock on the door and say, hey, we're having a free barbecue out at the park. Bring your kids out, come play, come have some fun. And, and then they got back to the park and they prayed and then people started coming out. Coming out and letting them play with their kids and care for them and, and talk to them and, and just care for their hearts. And in the midst of it, what, what was amazing is that it opened up the opportunity to share and people started putting their faith in Christ right there in the park as 14 and 15-year-olds boldly proclaimed the gospel. It's powerful. And it didn't stop there because the next day was our share day. 
where they were focusing on actually sharing and, and, and they started thinking more strategically about what they wanted to do as our group got dropped off by Union Station on 16th Street. And that's where we were to be. And, and I got there and I'm going, okay, one of our vans had to park a couple blocks away. We're going to wait for them. The group that was with me went, no, we're not. <laughs> as they watched thousands of people walking around, they went, we got work to do. They almost didn't give me time to pray over them. They were ready to go so fast. And they started going into very intimidating situations and just boldly proclaiming the gospel, saying, hey, can I, can I tell you something that you need to know, something that's important? Can I give you some news that, that you should have probably known? Or can I ask you what you believe about Jesus? And they begin these conversations. It was powerful to watch as they boldly carried this out. And here's what I love, is you could see in every conversation that their focus wasn't just on what we were doing there, but going, okay, so how do I bring this back home? Because we need to see this happen there. And the next day, they spent the whole day strategically planning on how to bring this home, how to carry this out in our youth ministry, how to carry it out in their own lives and in their schools, to their teams. They planned out the next four months strategically of what they want to see happen in our youth ministry so that... We can see these things go, and you may be looking and saying, isn't it a little weird and, and strange to plan strategically? Our enemy's planning strategically against us, so it's about time we get a little strategic with it, right? And they're excited, they're coming back, but here was one of their strategies, here's one of the pieces that they were asking and trying to figure out is, and so how do we get the church to join us? We feel like we're ready, how do we get the adults to join us because we can't even imagine what God could do? How do we do this? That afternoon, they, they took letters that they were writing and they, they wrote letters out to friends and family to share the gospel with them that they sent out from there. It was an exciting time for me because early on in the week, Janae couldn't come with us. She had the kids, but she got to go and visit her family in chapel. And, and as she was there, her Aunt Bonnie and Uncle Gary came up from Corpus Christi. Well, two years before, I was sitting at a Lead the Cause event and I wrote a letter to Gary. I wanted to, to share the gospel with him, so I wrote him this, this two-page letter explaining the gospel out, sent it to him, and I knew two weeks later I was going to get to see him. That time came, and we're in Oklahoma. It's the middle of the night. He and I are standing on a dock in the dark trying to catch fish. And I said, now's my chance because I can outrun Gary up the hill, so we'll be all right. <laughs> I said, hey, Gary, did you, get, did you get my letter that I sent a couple weeks ago? And he goes, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't check the mail. You'll have to ask Bonnie about that. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe he got it, maybe he didn't, but I've brought it up, so now it's going to get awkward. <laughs> so I said, well, Gary, let me tell you what was in that letter. And I could tell that he was really uncomfortable with me doing this. He was kind of walking away a little bit on the dock to get away from me. And I'm, I'm a little weird, and so I'm kind of pursuing him a little bit, like going, okay. But I, after a bit, realized Gary's just kind of going, hey, I don't want to talk about this. And I felt really discouraged, kind of shut down. I was kind of going, God, I don't, I don't know how many more opportunities we're going to have with Gary. This was, this was something I felt was urgent. God, what are you doing? I don't get it. I don't understand it. And it was heartbreaking. And I just thought, okay, God, you're going to open something else up. As I said, Janae's sitting there at, at her parents' house, and Bonnie and Gary are up. And Bonnie sends a text to her dad saying, hey, uh, Gary's been asking about baptism. He wants to know more about it and maybe wants to get baptized. Could you guys talk to him about it? So Janae and her dad got to have a conversation. They're talking to Gary about baptism. A few minutes into it, Bonnie comes bursting into the room and goes, whatever you're talking about, stop and start over because I want to hear every word of it. Well, as they're 
talking this through and Janae's getting to explain the gospel out, Bonnie brings up that they've had this letter hanging on their fridge for two years that I wrote them. And then Janae sent me a picture of Gary with his faith in Christ getting baptized in the backyard that night. She got to walk through this with him and, and see this happen. It's just powerful what God does. And God continues to move. And I got to share that with students saying it doesn't matter if it's two weeks from now or two years or 20 years. God will use this. But we have to be faithful to do what he's called us to. It's just exciting to see God work. And so we came home excited, ready to go. And, and it didn't stop there because then a couple days ago, the young adults called a meeting and they invited me to it, which I was lucky to get to be there. And here's what the question was. What do we want to do for this year? What do we want to see happen? We've got a lot of stuff that pours into us. What are we going to do that's an outreach that pours out from us? And they started discussing and they started talking. They started thinking about a lot of different things. What's amazing is there was a group of 14 of them that were planning on going camping up in South Dakota this weekend to, to go to the Hills Alive concert. And they were just going to go have some fun. And they called it a time of fellowship. And then they left that meeting that night going, no, we're going on mission because there's a lot of people up there that don't know Christ. So they set a goal that each of them would try to share the gospel at least once while they were up there with all these people to walk through the gospel and to start being on mission with this. And we got to commission them and lay hands on them and pray over them as they went. And they're heading out. They, on their way up there, they stopped about halfway, pulled over, got out and prayed again because they realized we got to get on mission here. We got to be focused for this because this matters the ones that are staying here said, okay, we're, we're going to stick around here, but we're going to send in air support. We're going to be praying that the enemy be decimated before you even step out of the car so that you can walk in there and the conversations are open. Opportunities come up and they're free. And then we're here and we're going to be looking for opportunities around us. But in that discussion that night, you know what came up? Was the question of, so how do we get the rest of the adults in the church with us? Our, our 11 to 30-year-olds are asking that question of what can we do? And they're not looking at you and saying, well, they're not doing it. They're looking and saying, we want to team up with them. We want to join with them because we want to see God move in the way that we know he already is. We want to be part of that. And they want you. And they need you. And they're inviting you. If you'd like to know more of how you can get involved, I'm not talking about serving on a Wednesday night. I'm talking about being part of United in one spirit for one purpose across the multi-generational body of this local church. Come and talk to me. I'd love to teach you how to strategically plan with your life group to be part of this. How to get together with your family and to be thinking ahead of what are we going to do? What's our cause turf? Which neighbors are we going to start reaching out to right now? To start thinking this way for a purpose. And it's not our purpose. It's the purpose of Christ. That we would be the body of Christ united in Christ. That statement in Christ might be confusing to you. Because maybe you're looking at it and going, okay, you're talking about the body of Christ, you're talking about faith in Christ, you're talking about all these things, and I don't quite understand what that is. And I want to make it really simple and clear for you here as we close. You were created to be with God in an intimate, real relationship. You are created for that purpose. But our sin has separated us from God. Sins aren't just bad things that we do. It means missing the mark. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. There was a standard set and we fell short. We didn't hit the holiness and perfection of God. 
and our sin has separated us from our holy God, and that's the void that we feel, that we try to fill constantly. It's why we seek happiness and try to find purpose in that. It's why we look to relationships to fulfill us. It's why we look to all sorts of things to fulfill us because we feel an emptiness and a void. And temporarily, they can feel like they've filled us, but they always seem to fail because we are created for one thing, that relationship with God. So we think maybe I can earn that back. Maybe I can get back to that. I can be good and get back, but our sins are not removed by good deeds. In the book of Isaiah, God tells us through the prophet Isaiah that our good deeds are like filthy rags to God. It's not that there's no point in them, but when it comes to the purpose of of earning my salvation, they are useless because everything that I do in order to earn my salvation, every good deed that I do in that point, I'm dipping in my own selfishness thinking I can earn something out of it. So it's handing God these rags that are doused in a sinful heart and saying, I hope this is good enough. And God's going, that's not what I require. He doesn't require good deeds He requires the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. So Jesus, God in flesh, God himself, paying the price for our sins, he died and he rose again. He died, his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. He rose again where he defeated death and God gives him the full authority and power to give you new life. And now everyone, hear me, everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. Everyone. Isaiah 59.1 says, The arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. There is no one too far. No one who is out of his reach. No one who cannot call out to him for salvation. No one. But it's everyone who trusts in him alone. Again, not by your works. It's his works on your behalf. His death paying the price for you. The debt has been paid, but you have to accept that and submit to the fact that it was earned for you and accept the free gift of salvation. Everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life and that life with Jesus starts the moment you put your faith in him and lasts forever. There is nothing that can take that away from you because you are in the Father's hands. And as Jesus says in John 10, The Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and there is no one strong enough to take them from the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's saying this, that there's nothing that anyone can say to you or do to you, nothing that Satan himself can come at you with that is strong enough to knock you out of the Father's hand. And there is no amount of your sin that is stronger or more powerful than his grace and forgiveness for you. It's permanent. You are sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit through your faith in Jesus to have heaven for eternity, and he walks with you starting right now through eternity. If you're here today and you've not put your faith in Jesus as the one and only way for you to be saved, I invite you to do that as we close. I'm gonna pray, and when I'm praying, I'm talking to God so you can ignore me because I want you to talk to God. I want you to go to God and say, God, I know that I've sinned. I missed the mark, the standard that you set. But God, I also know that you love me so much that you've made a way for me to be brought back into a restored relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And I'm trusting in him and him alone to save me right now. Express what's going on in your heart to the Father during this time. 
For those of you who already have your faith in Christ, while I pray, I want you to pray and say, okay, God, point out in me what it is that's keeping me from unifying with my brothers and sisters. And would you, God, uproot it, get rid of it, humble me, help me to submit to your lordship and not my own. God, help me to see them through your eyes that I would forgive and that I would walk in unity, one spirit, one purpose. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the call on us to be the body of Christ. God, right now I pray that if there's anyone in here who has not yet put their faith in you, that you would draw them in by your spirit, God. That you would make today the day of salvation, God, as they respond to your call, to your truth, to the gospel, the power of God, to the salvation of everyone who believes. God, would you, would you draw them in? God, for those of us that already have our faith in you, unite us as your body for the sake of the lost, for the sake of your church, for the sake of each other, God, for the sake of your glory, all for the glory of Christ. Break down whatever we have built on another foundation, God, and bring us back to that. Let us come back to our first love. God, change us, grow us, use us. God, ignite in us a revival. In our own hearts, God, that spreads to this church, that spreads to this community, that spreads around this world. God, would you move in mighty ways that we know you can. We praise you, God. We thank you. We look forward to all it is that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.